Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets podcast. I'm Graham Davis, digital editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm standing in this week for our editor, John Human, who's been struck down, sadly, by illness. Uh, with me in the studio, I've got uh, Stephen Wilmot, our company's editor. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Graham. Also, Ian Smith, news editor. Hey, how you doing, Graham? Very well, thank you. And over there in the control room, Mark Robinson. Hello, Graham. Okay, this week, uh, what what have we got, Ian? It's uh, we're, we're going to come to you first on, on on news. Basically, markets are selling off quite sharply uh, as we speak. Yes, and we're discussing this in the elevator on the way down. What, what, what we think is behind this, and a lot of people will say possibly Greece. Mm, um, once again, there's uh, yeah, Greece. Once again, uh, there's this big uh, 305 million euro uh, bailout repayment that's yep. due on Friday. Mm-hmm. There's been rumours that became reports of a deal. We haven't seen the deal yet. Yeah. Um, Alexei Tsipras, the Greek Prime Minister, was locked in discussions with the international creditors last night. But yeah, as we went to podcast, we uh, didn't hear anything about that. But we were, what we were discussing on the way down, Stephen and I, uh, was that really what's probably driving this, uh, although you can never tell exactly, is the long-term inflation expectations, mm. which have risen. So less, pe- less people, fewer people are worried about deflation in the Eurozone. Yeah. Um, so inflation obviously erodes the value of your bonds. So a lot of people perhaps getting out of bonds. So that may sell off that we saw mm. of government bonds that then fell away again. We started to see that strengthen again today. It seems to have come back with a vengeance exactly the last right. few days. Interestingly enough, our, our COPOC indicator this month, which is a monthly um, a, a, a monthly thing that we run, it, uh, suggests that, uh, well, the title that John has given it is Bond Bloodbath. And it suggests that a lot of the sell signals are on, on the bond markets now. So maybe that's, uh, maybe that's coming true. Yeah, exa- exactly right. I mean... Be a braver man than me to predict bond yields. Mm, indeed, <laughs> you know, just when you think you know which way they're going, they turn around. But we, I mean, you know, some some weeks ago, we we promised we were going to stop talking about Greece because we seem to be talking about it every single week, and it doesn't get anywhere nearer. Now, are we are we coming to the end game now? Do you think? No, uh, because <laughs> even if there is an agreement, um, there will be lots of clauses in it around when they have to. Um, provide budget surpluses and um, the kind of economic reforms that will have to be enacted under the agreement uh, and all of these things will have to then be sold back at Athens well they kind of are being sold back at Athens at the moment mm. but they'll have to be passed on to the Greek people I mean it's and it's bound to be a fudge so fudges tend to unravel and to yeah. mix metaphors badly but, <laughs> <laughs> but no we did we've been here before i think haven't we this this can just keeps getting kicked a little bit further down the road yeah exactly right we've got a political party that was elected under um the almost impossible task of keeping greece in the eurozone mm. while making no concessions um and you've got an international community uh, that doesn't also doesn't want to give concessions so yeah i'm sure we'll be talking at, at the next bailout payment and once beyond mm. that so sorry listeners Yes, indeed. And uh, it sounds like Mr. Varoufakis is going to get a bit more practice with his game theory, isn't he? He'll be he? on his motorbike. <laughs> what else do we have in, 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 in the news this week, Ian? Um, we looked at Lloyd's. Uh, the government has mm. reduced its uh, stake again, the taxpayer stake, um, down to 19%. Um, and there's reports that, that George Osborne Chancellor is going to talk about uh, RBS in Mansion House speech next week and the reduction of the much larger, I think it's about 80% stake mm. that the taxpayer owns in RBS. And um, at a loss. Yes, and at a loss. And the big problem with RBS is it's, it's still about a pound below what is seen as a break-even value for yeah. the government um, factoring in the cost of taking on that stake. So, yeah, a very difficult times for the government. Um, and then just and as R- we R- RBS is a lot further away from being in the state Lloyd's is in, isn't it? 
Exactly right. You know, that's why the government's finding it so much easier to sell down its stake in Lloyd's. The, mm. gov- uh, the bank's in a lot better stake. Although uh, we have just seen news of a further £100 million PPI uh, fine that it's going to have to pay. Um, but at this point, it's paid so much already. Yeah. <laughs> um, a drop but, in the ocean, Yeah, isn't it? it's a drop in the ocean, but the shares are slightly down. Um, and then we've just heard about the government trying to extract itself from another stake, which is its stake in Royal Mail, which it still owns 30% off. Mm. Um, so we don't know any more of the details about that at this point, um, but I think it's a, just a they're a good um, source of positive or uh, reasonably positive news headlines for yeah. the government that they can say, oh, we're selling this off, we're returning, we're getting value back for the taxpayer. Um, and by the way, there's some spending cuts we're doing as well, but focus on the big retail sell-off. And how, how much do analysts think that stake's worth? Or well, we can work it out, I guess, from the share price. Yeah, I think it was about um, one and a half billion um, from the numbers I saw. Okay, interesting thing there, I suppose, will be the, how they sell it. To, will it go retail or to institutions? And if it goes to in- institutions, what price are they going to? Uh, yes, because we yeah we were promised with um well we have been promised that with Lloyd's there's going to be a discount, hmm. um and there's also going to be a loyalty bonus for holding on to the shares. Um, but that Lloyd's um retail share sale has been talked about for many yeah. times, but uh, we've heard again that it's going to happen within the year. So, but given the controversy about floating. Royal Mail too cheaply. It's yeah. it's interesting what kind of discount you know. It, on the one hand, it would be contradictory for them not to offer a discount, given they will with Lloyd's. On the other hand, they want to kind of extract themselves from headlines about selling, flogging it too cheaply. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of balance balancing act they perform there, and the kind of relationships they strike with the people that will be involved in the sell-off as well, because that was where a lot of the questions were around Royal Mail, right? Yes. So they've got indeed. Rothschild um, advising on. Uh, the Royal Mail sell-off. So it'd be interesting to see how the process is done. Mm. Yeah, we'll wait and see on that one. Uh, also in the news, Ian, I noticed that the, we, we've talked about Plus 500 in, in, in previous weeks and that situation's moved on this week. You, you wrote your new spotlight on it. What's the latest there? It's even There's, moved on today, <laughs> hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, what is the, do you want to hear about the latest or everything that's happened? Um, the latest is that um, Playtech have launched a 400... Uh, p per share bid mm. for it which is really a bargain price um and uh, what's interesting about that is that some of the shareholders in it, od asset management have increased their stake they now own a quarter of the company jp morgan also um today uh, which is thursday um, increased their stake in the company as well um and there's talk in the markets that od asset management want a higher stake and then od came out this afternoon, also this morning, mm. with a statement where they said that the 400p a share materially undervalues the stock, and that and that it's an opportunistic bid taking um, advantage of market sentiment, like all bids. Of course, <laughs> indeed, and market sentiment has been terrible towards plus 500 up to the, up to this bid coming in. Yeah, they've been uh, the victim of some pretty vicious short uh, selling attacks. Mm. Um, and yeah, sometimes and presumably but, people just getting out of a story, which is yeah. you know unraveling faster yeah. than. And it was yeah. a high octane stock. I mean, the shares had gone gone crazy yeah. over the twelve months up till up till they realised they actually weren't carrying out the proper um, due diligence due diligence on the on, on the users of their service. Yeah, exactly right. It, you can't really blame the short sellers when they then come out with something that no one <laughs> knew, uh, which was that um, they the FCA were pressuring them over their anti money laundering um, protocols or a lack of. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting story. I asked Playtech, who was taking over, um, how much of a kind of strong uh, compliance team they have, and they've got, uh, currently got a ten strong team, which doesn't seem like a huge amount. But out of five hundred staff, at least it's sizable, and they are actually looking. They will look if they um, make this acquisition to increase that compliance staff. 
Um, so I talk a little bit in the piece about the FCA perhaps toughening its stance to um, the retail FX, CFD, mm. spread betting um, sector, which is how they group these companies, yep. and especially around the execution and the appropriateness test for customers, and clearly, and um, this onboarding, which is the jargon they use for getting new customers on board mm. um, and, and making sure they understand who those people are. And you, you told me an interesting fact about how OD has been building its stake as well. Yeah, so the, the latest stake that it built, I think it might, um, forgive me if I'm wrong on the numbers, but it's around 19% that they are via shares. But in, to increase their stake above 25%, what do they use? Contracts for difference. <laughs> it's a nice irony to the story. Indeed. being a CFD provider. So I mean, we, we, we had this as a buy, we got out of it, and now we're sort of on the sidelines. We're not, we're not going to get involved in this, or we wouldn't advise readers no, we Pumped got out, on this. We got out at four seventy, hmm. um, and it's since sunk well below four hundred, and the deal is at four hundred. There could yet be a higher price negotiated, yep. but clearly the management team want to get out at this price. Um, I haven't actually got it with me, but if you compare it to the price at which it listed on AIM, it's a substantial return for the management hmm. uh, owners of the company. Um, so you you know you can see why they're incentivized, um, especially if the problems are worse than the things that we've heard. Yep. Um, sounds like sounds like there's a, there's a, there's a lot more to come in that story. I think we'll be talking about that again in in, in, the, in the coming weeks. Um, so what I also wanted to I wanted to move on um, within the, the the magazine. Thanks, Ian, for for your comments on the news. Um, we, this week we've got our second of a new monthly series on commodities, written by Mark Robinson, our commodities expert. And Mark, um, what are you focusing on this month? Well, um, this week, uh, the delegates from OPEC are meeting in uh, Vienna again. And this is the most um, sort of highly anticipated meeting since the last one. Um, (laughs) Basically, the the main issue, as ever, is linked to uh, production quotas. And uh, everything that we've read in the the lead up to uh, this week's meeting is that uh, Saudi Arabia are likely uh, to keep levels, uh, keep keep the stasis, in other words, um, Why is that? I mean, it could be, oil, oil producers must be suffering. Well, Surely, yeah, Saudi is suffering. I mean, we, they, they, they did this. We we thought this was a short-term move to sort of get rid of the marginal production, didn't we? Has that not happened? Well, it, some um, sort of lower margin production has been uh, squeezed out of the market, but uh, it's still and un- it's still unsure whether that's going to be a permanent feature of the unconventional industry in the U.S. because um, we are seeing some evidence. Uh, that uh, producers are actually lowering uh, their costs and uh, can come back into the market fairly quickly. So um, I've read varying uh, differing reports as to whether this uh, strategy has actually been a success or otherwise. Um, I guess it's interesting uh, with this particular meeting is because um, delegates from um, non-OPEC producing countries will be there also. So there's always an outside chance that... um, there might be a, a concerted effort to try and um, uh, cut production in order to um, push up prices because aside from uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, a lot of other um, countries are, are suffering uh, terribly because of the relatively low prices. Hmm. So, but Saudis are going to stand firm, we think. We think so. I mean, well, that's that's what the that's what the consensus is so far. It does make you wonder what the point of a cartel is at all mm. if well, you can't it, keep prices up. Well, exactly. A lot of people have been saying that it's a busted flush for a number of years now. The fact that the only um, state within a uh, member state within the cartel, Saudi Arabia, that's the only real swing producer, uh, the only one with any significant spare capacity. In other words, 
Um, but if you, you look at, um, at the break-even levels for other member states, this is the break-even levels just to fund their, um, their ongoing government uh, budgets. I mean, you, you look at Algeria, for instance, uh, it needs, the estimates are, differ on this, but we, we think that they need about 100 oil at $131 a barrel just to fund their internal government spending. And if you go down the list, uh, Iran, $130. Uh, same with uh, Nigeria at one hundred and twenty-three dollars. So you can you can see the problem that's uh, emerged there. Hmm. Uh, and and we we've discussed in in the past as well um, that there could also be a, a, a political element to this as well because uh, the Saudis um, are very keen to check uh, Iran's uh, growing influence within the region as well. But I mean that's. That's that's purely conjecture, obviously. But actually, in the in the news section this week, uh, there was some figures out from one of the defence uh, analyst companies, um, and they say that Saudi Arabia is set to become the fifth largest military spender by 2020, massively ramping up its uh, defence spending as a result of the regional unrest. So you can see why they're keen to milk as much as possible. Well, uh, yes, of course, and a, a lot of that is for um, internal security spend as well. Uh, the political situation there is far from cut and dried, and the, and the, the country is involved in a in a political insurgency in um, neighbouring Yemen now as well. So um, this this is another sort of point that I make here is that it seems, with oil prices uh, being what they were, that there seems to be absolutely nothing in the way of a security premium priced in, which seems um, it's unusual. It seems it? astonishing given mm. given what's going on in the region. And if you I, I don't know you if if you you can read a lot of things into this, perhaps the fact that uh, the Gulf states are fairly secure in the knowledge that uh, that Daesh won't uh, form an existential threat to, the, to either them or, or their oil production. But that is just pure conjecture. Indeed, and there is, a, there is a threat to Iraqi oil production, though, surely? You would think so, yeah. I mean, most of Iraq's producing assets are in um, the south of the country and well away from the... Um, the trouble at the moment, but uh, given the recent uh, military successes that uh, the Islamists have had, um, we, we can't be sure on this going forward. Um, so the uh, OPEC will, will put out some sort of announcement during the course of Friday, will they, on, uh, as to... Uh, it'll probably be later than that. We'll get an indication on, on Friday about uh, any uh, preliminary moves. But as I, as I say, most of uh, the comments in, in the days leading up to the meeting suggest that Saudi Arabia will will keep um, uh, quotas at current levels. Um, what does that mean for the for the oil price? Uh, and what's what's the longer term? Well, it's it, uh, well, it's a negative for the remainder of this year as well. I mean, it's recovered slightly, but uh, there's varying reasons given for that as well. Um, the fact that uh, long term contracts, people have been buying into them in expectation of the price hitting seventy seventy five dollars the remainder of this year. We don't know if that's the case any longer. It, the outlook, the outlook is still negative at, at this stage. So for the rest of this year, it could track around where it is. You think? Uh, that's uh, yeah. That seems to be the consensus at the moment. Okay. And what else is going on in the in the world of commodities? Well, there's a couple of things I've uh, uh, mentioned here, and one's an interesting move by uh, Norway, or rather, it's. Um, a massive sort of sovereign wealth fund, the state, effectively the state pension fund. Uh, a vote's going through uh, Norway's parliament tomorrow, which would effectively um, ban any investments in uh, companies that uh, derive at least 30% of uh, their revenues, either through uh, coal production or coal-fired um, power generation. 
it's it's an interesting uh, move and, and it, um, it feeds into a, a growing uh, international campaign uh, linked to divestment in uh, fossil fuel companies. Mm. Um, whether this has got any legs is anyone's guess. I mean, it's a fairly significant investment here. There's about $10 billion in investments held by uh, Norway's uh, sovereign wealth fund at the moment. How big is that sovereign wealth fund, though? Come on, that's not... that's a drop in the ocean, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's worth nearly $900 uh, billion. Dollars so it's symbolic total. more than anything, really? Yeah, yeah, but I mean... The, 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 that that's their entire holdings in mm. coal-linked assets. I mean, you'd you'd be you wouldn't want want much exposure to um, to coal at the moment, anyway. I mean, the the, the interesting thing about it, of course, is that uh, this uh, this became the world's largest sovereign wealth fund through uh, another fossil fuel, obviously. So there seems to be a, a bit of selective amnesia on the part mm. of the Norwegians. It's interesting if you compare it with uh, Canada, where they have some pretty big pension funds over there, um, and they don't rule out investing in the oil tar sands. Which, um, so in terms of that responsible investment taking over institutional investors as a big global trend, you know, yeah, for, um, for Canada it's a big part of their pension funds as they should invest in the um, the country and what it produces. So there's different schools of thought. On on that point as well, Ian, um, that, that's one of the areas that, that actually has been affected by um, uh, the OPEC quotas at the moment. Uh, there's been a couple of large uh, oil, oil sands projects in Canada that have been uh, mothballed now. But... Um, the, the the general world oil supply is increasing at the moment. Unconventional uh, supply is still increasing as well. So I don't know if that indicates that the Saudi policy is, uh, has failed to live up to expectations. Okay. Well, I'm I'm off to Norway on my holidays in the summer. So maybe if I bump into the locals, I'll uh, I'll ask, ask them for their opinion on, on the divestments of their coal reserves. Just on a separate point as well. Mm. There's a, there's a for the benefit of our readers. I've um, I looked at some interesting. Um, stats regarding um, industrial metal prices at the moment and bulk um, bulk metals as well. Uh, and there's a and there's a couple of uh, long term plays that we identify in terms of uh, uh, nickel and uh, physical copper as well. But uh, I won't go into it here. But it, it's quite interesting. Not all sort of industrial metal markets are dead at the moment. Good. Well, that's interesting to hear. Um, thanks, Mark. Uh, Stephen. On the company side of things this week? Yes, things are quieting down after the sort of May results rush, um, but we still got a number of companies reporting for the year end mm. uh, to the end of March. Any themes going out there? Uh, well, one of the obvious ones is property. This is always a bit of a, quite a busy season for property companies, but um, yeah, three major property companies, three Fizzy 250 property companies reported um, last week London Metric, Helical Bar. And workspace. Yeah, what's what notable about these? I mean, just uh, just skim reading through before, you know, the share price graphs are, are all pretty similar. Only yeah, seem to be heading one way. Yeah, I mean, and but we, they're quite different companies. They are, yes. And we, all, the other thing that they have in common is that we ha- all have them on. We have them all on buys. Mm. So, it, I mean, it, it it is a bit of a momentum play at the moment, but it, it's hard to see it ending just yet. I mean, yeah. Obviously, property is quite infamously cyclical, but. Um, the good time started a couple of years ago and um, uh, have yet to reach that apex. I mean, that's, that's how you invested Chronicle anyway. How long is that typical cycle? Well, I suppose the last up cycle lasted really quite a long, well, from 95 to 2007. Okay. It was quite a long time. Of course, there was a bit of a blip for the dot-com mm. bust, notably in the office 
sector, but actually retail kept on going. And I mean that, that, that you know these these companies aren't they don't do the same thing. And, and I think that's quite a there's some interesting distinctions here. So mm. L- London Metric um, specialises in retail, but which is about the least sexy of the property sectors. Um, yeah, that it's been the least strong recoverer. And is um, it is this London retail or is it regional? Um, no, regional retail, but and that's because of e-commerce, obviously, yep. um, as well as a development boom in the years running up to two thousand and seven. And there's just a lot of um, regional retail um, assets out there, um, and they've struggled to sort of get back to rental growth. But it, what what's interesting about London Metric is it's focused on the growth areas, and that's convenience retail and hmm. distribution hubs. So not the not actually shops at all, um, and and Helical Bar has also been getting into distribution hubs, um, and it announced on you know in its latest results that it's it's completed its rotation out of out of shopping centres and into distribution warehouses. So okay. they're they're sort of doing a, a different a similar thing there. And this for the, that similar to a company we tipped not that long ago, Tritax, Tritax which is indeed, another yeah, retail yeah. big box. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that only does this big box mm. distribution stuff, which is because of e-commerce, a kind of, kind of growing theme. Um, but uh, Workspace is quite a different company. I mean, the, the astonishing thing about Workspace was just how strong um, you know, it, it's it's grown. I mean, the, now, I used to write about Workspace back in my days as a smaller company's writer, and then it did little industrial units, uh, sort of periphery of London, and was you know, small industrial warehousing type stuff. Yeah, and they've they've changed, and they were very keen to point that out to me in the later years of writing. Yeah. that they weren't just doing that. What? How have they? Well, so yeah, they start. It? They they started. Yeah, they used to have industrial estates, white man van type. Mm properties um in like zone three and four and a bit in zone two uh, and fringes fringes of zone one in latter years they've basically specialized more in the sort of the stuff in inner city so zone one one and two okay and they've divested a certain number of the kind of sheds hmm. um, a bit further out they've kept some of them for the income but they've they've divested a lot of them and then they've specialized in redeveloping basically these inner city assets for residential so, okay so, so warehouse loft apartment type things yes so often they're quite a well they so they 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 you know these were business part a they, they they weren't so much white van man stuff anymore but they were they, they turned them into basically light office hmm. space for entrepreneurs okay in the east end um so a slightly higher value usage there anyway and then they basically sold off half that you know if the, if you have a kind of um three acre estate or whatever they sold off you know, an acre for to a lap, to a house builder they've done a deal with telford homes for example which is another oh yeah famous ice, east end ice, house builder favorite yeah um done in poplar um and uh and they sell yeah they sell off a bit to the house builder um for a sum and then they they take a profit if if it beats certain um valuation metrics which obviously it has <laughs> yeah. london housing market and um and then they they sort of basically build up and sort of they basically take out all the wasted space mm. and and just dense it, make the site a bit more dense and so they crammed the same amount of office space and a load of housing and that that strategy which they've been pursuing for a couple of years has really produced super profits and so last year their 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 book value increased forty two percent which wow. is astonishing and that wasn't a recovery that followed a forty three percent increase the previous year. 
So, I mean, they, those numbers really speak for themselves. They've been doing exceptionally well. So it's really paying off by the sounds of things. I mean, the, the, these are still sort of capital appreciation plays. Are they, they're not yield Well, plays, workspace they, is yeah. a cap- definitely a capital appreciation play still. I mean, it's underlying business, which is letting out space to entrepreneurs. That's going pretty well. But the real source of profits is this sort of housing angle. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I d- I, people wouldn't be buying into it, buying into it for yield, which is 1.3% um, historically. But uh, and the same with Helical Bar, and again, it's a similar story. They they have some assets regionally, but the the real valuation, the the real uh, value creator there is the, is London developments, um, notably offices. Um, but but London Metric is a yield play, and it's got a fully covered uh, dividend of four point one historically, four point one percent historically, and uh, uh, yeah, that's um, that's a, a well managed um, yield play. But well, crucially, it doesn't have anything in London. Mm. Well, it sold its last um, uh, London office last year, so it, you know, the reason it can churn out good income is because it it doesn't play into this super hot capital appreciation market that is the capital. Yeah, and we're sticking with uh, all three of those on buys. Then we are excellent. Now, now talking about yield, this is a terrible segue. This, but you're uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're taking stock column this week uh, covers a couple of what have traditionally Classic been yield favourites. Yes, uh, the tobacco companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, I, I've always found the I don't smoke, so I don't have a vested interest in, in this one in a way. Mm. But one, I don't really care if people do smoke, as long as it's not very close. Not it's like close it makes to you money. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yes, nor do I own stocks, I should say. Either of these companies, British American Tobacco and Imperial Tobacco, are obviously the ones we're talking about, the, mm. the UK you know, staples of income investing for years and years. And I, I guess, I've, But I've always found them fascinating because... You know, they, they've basically been investing against a backdrop of decline for years, yeah. and yet they just continue to, to grow. And I, they, I tried to sort of find a clear way of representing this, and I think the clearest one I came, came across was British American Tobacco. In 2006, it sold 691 billion cigarettes, and it was worth just under €30 billion uh, pounds on, the, on the market. Yep. At the end of last year, it sold 667 billion cigarettes, so about 5% less, um, and its year-end market valuation was 65 billion, so more it's than more twice. Than doubled. Hmm. So it's, it's just there's just this extraordinary disconnect between the volume of cigarettes it sells, which is its you know just about its only product. Okay, some cigars and stuff, but it's mainly cigarettes, and um, and its market valuation, um, and 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 you know th- th- that that's a bit of a puzzle. But I think it's very instructive um, for in- investors. Um, I mean, actually, there was some interesting reading which I didn't talk about here. But I, in a previous column, regular readers may remember. A, um, th- there was some great research out from the London Business School um, uh, guys, uh, Paul Marsh and uh, Elroy Dim- Dimson, who do the yep. research into long-term equity returns, and they found that um, cigarettes were tobacco was the best-performing sector in the U.S. over the, uh, since 1900. So over a very long time horizon, tobacco has beaten all other sectors, which is which is interesting. Um, but it, but you know th- that was also a growth era for tobacco. So mm. it, you know, latterly it has been anything but a growth era, and they still managed to massively outperform. I mean, they have grown in emerging markets, haven't they? But there's signs that even that might be. Yeah, emerging. and that, that's one of the interesting points. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So they had this emer- emerging market growth story um, for for some years, but that's been kind of um, you know the, the, the emerging market boom is somewhat uh, over anyway. But also, there's been regulatory clampdowns, and you know. 
one of the reasons I wrote about this was because China, Beijing introduced mm. a big clampdown on on public smoking on Monday. It's amazing how many how many men smoke on average in, in Fif- China. Fifty two percent of the yeah. Chinese population, uh, male population, this is something like only seven percent of the female, which That's is interesting, interesting too. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's the, the by far the, the world's largest tobacco market, but um, these players don't really have a um, uh, uh, much of a handle in it um, because it's monopolised by the China National Tobacco Corporation, the state-owned firm. Though, though Bats does have a little joint venture with um, with that company, but yeah, the, the, that that's not the, the China, Chinese crackdown is not is not a big concern. But there have been other crackdowns in Brazil and Turkey and Philippines, for example, mm. which have been a big bigger problem. Um, but but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that actually, the, you know, we've had these crackdowns in the Western world and they've still managed to increase prices. So. Um, yeah, this this increasing it's that inelastic it's demand. That, yeah, exactly. Increasing prices um, just does not seem to put tobacco consumers off. And they managed, and there has been a, a certain amount of consolidation as well. So they managed to sort of build through buying bolt-ons as well. Yes, I mean there have been yeah lots of bolt-ons and another one. Bats announced another one this week. TDR, the Croatian market leader, um, and obviously Imperial is is doing a tie-up with um, with with Laurel Lorillard and Reynolds and two U- big US players there's a mega, there's a, they're doing a mega merger basically mm. but the competition authorities in the US have forced them to divest some of their brands to 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 Imperial to make it a kind of beefed up third player post merger and so there's yeah I mean that and that's allowed them to cut costs and and I mean that's the reason why they're such amazing dividend players because Imperial has a 44% operating margin well if you've got a 44% operating margin um, you can you can afford to pay out really you know vast mm. amounts of cash to 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 shareholders and that that has kept you know pumping up the share price for for years and years. What about vaping? I have no experience of it myself. Well, I mean, you know you see more and more people. You do, yeah. Chuffing away on these plastic things outside pubs these days. Yeah, I mean I'm still marginal for them. But isn't it? it's still marginal. But it, you know they do report strong growth rates, but. That they're, they're a very very long way from paying for the dividends at this point. Those kind of new technologies, as ever with new technologies, and we don't yet know the health implications yeah. either. Yes, indeed. Mm. Okay, but, uh, but uh, how, how do we feel as a, a as a publication on on the sector? I, I think um, we have. I would like to say we have Imperial on a buy and Bats on hold. Um, I think that's right. Um, I'll we'll oh, check yeah. with Harriet. When we get back, back <laughs> I upstairs, can confirm right. that Bats is on hold. Thank you, Mark. And Imperial? I can confirm that Bats is on hold. <laughs> <laughs> Ever a politician. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, we... we it's, but the thing is, it's very hard to get excited about investing in declining industries, mm. isn't it? It's, I mean, it, it's, a, it's an odd one. That's why I sort of... T- tried to tackle the subject in this this week's call. But as you point out, a declining industry is not a, a signal to run for the hills. You can exactly. still make a decent business and make money out of investing in these yeah. in these companies. Um, what else have we got in the magazine this week? It's uh, it's packed with plenty of uh, interesting features as ever. The main cover feature is uh, a valedictory piece by Julia Bradshaw, who left us recently. That covers emerging markets. Entitled The Next Billion Consumers, Julia took a look at uh, the, the, the growing uh, trend towards consumer uh, spending in emerging markets 
and uh, and picked out six companies who are likely to benefit that investors in the UK can can buy into. We've also got John Barron's ever popular investment trust portfolio. He looked at diversifying his income. And Ian, it's a good uh, it's a good thing that you're here because I wanted to ask you about your the, the the other feature in the magazine, which covers an unexpected threat to shareholders. Uh, and this this takes us all the way back to talking to the bond deals we were talking about at the beginning of the uh, of the piece. Exactly right. The long and short of it is that the we, these um, incredibly low bond yields that we've seen, um, especially up to about May this year, mm. um, has meant that companies' pension scheme deficits, if they have an old defined benefit pension scheme, are massive. The liabilities, obviously, the higher, the lower the yields, the higher the liabilities, yep. the bigger the deficit, which means the company has to pay more money in. Um, and the way I kind of pitched it in the piece is this is one of the kind of worst understood um, and most important things that is affecting st- certain stocks um, that a lot of investors don't know about so if you might think that oh you know how important are pensions really but um, the payments that employers are going to have to make to their pension schemes this year um, because these things are evaluated every three years and this year it's a lot worse than it was three years ago yeah. are going to have to be a lot higher well Towers Watson which is a consultancy in the sector estimates that those payments will have to go up by 30% or the amount of time that the company will have to pay into that pension scheme for will have to be extended. Right. So either way, that's going to impact on either the company's growth or the, or the company's ability to pay dividends, uh, but depending on how they structure it. So there's lots of negotiations mm. that companies can do. But I point to one, I point to one well-known company, Arga Rangemaster, um, that had an agreement in 2011 um, made at its last triennial valuation um, not to pay dividends without the agreements of the pension scheme trustees. So it's the idea that as a shareholder, there's this group of people that might not have very much connection to the company anymore that actually have quite a lot of influence about the value you get out of that stock. Yeah. Um, so don't ignore pensions, and it's just a, it's a way of looking at perhaps some of the companies that you invest in and say how exposed are they to pensions, or to look at the companies that are most exposed to this issue. Because some, some employers don't have a pension scheme at all, or they don't have a pension scheme deficit at all. And it's not a big issue. Others, it is a growing headache. Mm, it's um, easy, easily yeah, overlooked as well. Easily overlooked. And even though yields have come back a bit, um, the, when these things were calculated, when they'll be doing that triennial valuation, a lot of them will be at the end of March. And that's a time when yields are really low. Yep. So you can't just think, well, yields are coming back up, so the, the situation's better for everyone, and it's not an issue anymore. Because a lot of these employers so expect in some of those um, annual reports for, for this period, um, bigger... Pay- payments being having to made into pension schemes and when when do we like to hear that i mean that that just comes around with the annual report doesn't yeah it? it depends because you although these things are fixed at a certain date in terms of when it's calculated it can take as much of it as a year for the right. scheme actually and all these people to sit down crunch the numbers and calculate these things um so yeah it's hard to exactly when it will hit but you know we might know by the end of the year then there might be more disclosure around it or it might be in the next um annual reports or half year results and there's some big names in the FTSE 100. You've, na- you've named um, the top five pension headaches. and uh, Yeah, yeah these, the, um, there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. One is how much the liabilities are as a proportion of the equity market value, which doesn't necessarily mean there's a big deficit there, but it just means it's one where you can have um, a pension scheme um, like with BAE where it's bigger than the equity market value of the company. So Which, I guess small changes in 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 the in the valuation will have a bigger impact on the on the value of the company, or the or the rather the 
the, the possible contribution that they might have to make. Exactly right. And and there's complications around whether they've put in place certain hedging strategies because pensions funds and employers are getting a lot more sophisticated about how to deal with market movements. So some of them might have put in certain hedges or um, certain insurance uh, contracts around it to reduce their risk in the pension scheme. But yeah, as a rule of thumb, you can look at either the pension schemes that I mentioned in here, the employers that have the largest pension deficit, or you can look at the employers where their pension liabilities are the biggest multiple of their market cap and say, well, that's something I at least need to think about as an investor. Yes, yeah, so you, do, you don't have to be terrified by these numbers, but just be aware is what we're saying. Yeah, be aware for what might be coming down the line. Mm. And in all of these cases, and there br- will br- be stuff. International Airlines is a good example, isn't it? There's no deficit, at least judging by your your nice table here. Yeah, yeah. So, but but the, the, the liabilities are, are two times the market cap. Yeah, exactly. So that's a situation where it could get a lot worse, uh, but it may not. And there can also be a benefit, you know. So we talk about the pension, the employers that have benefited from pension credits where perhaps the liabilities haven't been as much as they thought and then it's benefited them. So it's just keeping an eye on. And really most of these, especially the, la- the larger names, there'll be quite a lot in the public domain. But it's the smaller stocks where we look at basically what they have to put on the accounting in the set of accounts might not give the full picture mm. of the pension scheme deficit because that's not actually the um, that's not the calculation that the payments they have to make are based on. Funnily enough, you'd expect that would be the case, but actually, there's a more conservative calculation that's made by the regulator in the industry that is used um, to determine how much they have to pay in. So that kind of figure that you see on the counts that's the accounting deficit might not give quite a full picture of just how bad the pensions problem is for the company. Okay. Well, uh, it's well, well worth uh, reading that. It's oft, uh, oft overlooked um, factor in, in, when valuing a company, but uh, it seems as though um, uh, Ian's got it well covered there. Um, that just about covers everything. Thanks for your help, gentlemen. The magazine is available in all good news agents for £4.50 online and on iTunes. Thank you. <laughs>